0: Computer, initialize HollowSuite. HollowSuite Media!
1: Hello listeners and welcome back to The Voyages, a Star Trek podcast about the Kirks and their crews from the original series and Kelvin Films. Hosting today are Allie Black and Chris Hill. To keep up to date on all the news and updates from The Voyages, be sure to follow The Voyages Pod on Twitter and Facebook. Also subscribe and leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. This week we're going to be looking at the first book in the Vanguard series, Harbinger, with a very special guest, David Mack. New York Times bestselling author of more than 36 novels, consultant for Star Trek Lower Decks and Star Trek Prodigy.
2: Welcome listeners and yes, uh, as uh, Mike said, uh, we do have a special guest today. Uh, We have David Mack here with us, uh, the author of Vanguard Harbinger, which we are discussing today.
3: How's it going, David?
4: Going pretty good.
3: And Allie is here too. Hello everybody. So, uh, just to kind of
2: get us started uh with with the process and everything uh how how were you approached to to start writing here in the vanguard series with harbinger
4: the original idea for the vanguard series came from its editor marco palmieri Uh, this would have been in the uh, late autumn of 2004 was when he approached me At the time, he was a senior editor at Pocket Books, uh, an imprint of Simon & Schuster. And at that time, they were the primary imprint handling Star Trek novels. The idea that Marco had was he wanted a series that would be set parallel to the events of the original series, the classic Star Trek of the 1960s. But he also wanted to update the feeling of the era. He wanted a more modern sensibility. He wanted a more uh, modern and real politic sort of approach to the political situation uh, that we saw in the original series. So he wanted to get more into the notion of the Cold War between the Federation and the Klingons, the subterfuge of the Romulans, the sort of black market economy of the Orions, et cetera, et cetera. And he also wanted there to be some sort of an ongoing scientific mystery, some sort of uh, MacGuffin that we could hang a hat on and that could be threaded through the entire saga. Okay. And he wanted it to have a beginning, uh, a middle, and an end. So he approached me in November of 2004, because at that time I had just had my first two full-length Star Trek novels published. They were next-generation novels, part of a nine-book series called A Time Two. Mm -hmm. And I had written books seven and eight, A Time to Kill and A Time to Heal. Uh, They were both very well-received. They got good critical notices. And the second of the two, A Time to Heal, landed on the USA Today bestseller list. So that plus some of the other early work I had done writing for the Star Trek Books Office plus my pedigree coming in with uh, TV writing credits from Star Trek. Uh, At some point, Marco just decided that I would be the right guy to get that ball rolling and to develop the series. So he approached me to develop the series Bible and to flesh out the series concept from the sort of bare bones that he had uh, and to sort of visualize the entire scope of the saga and plan it out. So that was how I was approached.
2: Okay. Now, did you come in with any things that, that you knew you wanted to kind of introduce within that, that construct that uh, Marco presented to you?
4: Well, I didn't know what I was getting into. He called me into a meeting he said he wanted to talk about a new project idea, but he didn't tell me what it was. Okay. It wasn't until I got into the meeting and he sort of laid it all out for me and showed me what he had But the gears started turning very quickly. And I saw the opportunity to mix in, uh, you know, this ancient mystery could have alien uh, horror elements uh, of a Lovecraftian style. So we could have like, you know, great eldritch horrors, like the elder gods are alien forces we don't understand. Mm -hmm. Um, And the other thing that I'd always sort of wanted to play with, and I eventually worked it into the overall structure of the Vanguard saga was my feeling that the Genesis device and the technology it represented, as we saw it in star Trek II: wrath of Khan was far too advanced a technology for the federation of that era to be mucking about with it. It just, it seems like it's of a technology level far beyond what they ought to be playing with. So the notion I hit upon was that whatever it was, they were digging into with Operation Vanguard, it eventually uh, leads to the development of uh, the Genesis project.
2: Um, Allie, did you have any questions for for David at the moment before we get into the the book proper?
0: I do actually, I just had a, excuse me, Um, question about your character creation and development. Um, When you're creating new characters, did you come up with the species first, create their positions and ranks from there, Or did you consider a position first and created their rank and their race or their species around them?
4: Well, it was an interesting uh, process of character creation because I was asked by Marco to develop a core cast for the saga that would be a bit different from what we'd seen in previous Star Trek series. He didn't want the same old, same old lineup of Captain first officer, chief medical officer, chief engineer, etc. So what he and I talked about during the first meeting when he asked me to develop the series Bible was that he wanted to see, for instance, the station commander would be someone who would have command authority over an entire sector of space. Uh, this would be a commodore or an admiral, somebody at that level. And then he, instead of the usual lineup of officers, he wanted to have an intelligence officer, someone who is in the business of military intelligence. But he also wanted civilians. He wanted more than just the Starfleet military point of view. So he asked me to work in civilian characters, uh, the trader, the journalist, the diplomat. And so with that in mind, uh, some of these ideas he brought to the table, like he wanted some sort of he wanted the ambassador, for instance, to be of some sort of a crazy alien species i don 't remember if it was he or I who suggested the Chalons, the sort of turtle like aliens from the uh, motion picture. I think he might have you know had a, an image in his mind, and uh, then I developed from that um, okay. and then I just i started filling things in as I went along the The cast is pretty heavily weighted toward the human because. The original series was and we wanted it to feel like a companion piece to the original series but i tried to you know diversify where i could um and that was where characters like to being a vulcan comes in uh Larkal being a uh a klingon woman who's been modified to appear human and she's working under the uh, alias anna sandijo and she's part of the diplomatic contingent uh, then we had the Orion trader and we got to play with the notion of, you know, in Orion society, the women look like they're chattel, but in fact, they're the, the power brokers and the men are kind of under their pheromone control. Um, so I pretty much started with the mix of jobs that my editor wanted. And then I just started thinking about who I was going to plug into those jobs. And the majority of them wound up Human, But what was important to both of us, uh, to me and Marco, was that they not all be white. We wanted to make sure the future was a little bit more diverse. So we tried to make sure that uh, we represented people from the Asian continent, people from China, people from India. Uh, We tried to make sure there were characters of African origin uh, in the mix, South American, Chilean, The idea was that, you know, Earth is a pretty big place. Not everybody's going to be of a European persuasion. Right. So we tried to uh, mix it up, at least in that regard. Mm -hmm. Uh, And by the time we were done, I had drafted a 30-page Bible, and I had developed not only the core cast, the, the main characters, but I had done a lot of thinking about the secondary characters, the people who were serving aboard the starships attached to Starbase Vanguard, also known as Starbase 47. Um, and, uh, I guess what we sort of came up with there was that was where I seeded in most of the aliens, the, uh, the Andorians, the Tellarites, uh, other sort of core members of the founding species of the Federation kind of got seeded into those ships crews. I managed to get a Deltan in there, a Cation, a couple nods to the, you know, animated series in that regard. Um, but Pretty much it was just a matter of what felt right, what looked right. You know, I thought, uh, you know, tellurites seemed like they'd be good engineers, but who knows? They probably have the same range of skills as anybody else. I didn't want to get into the habit of monolithic thinking that this species can only be good at that job. Uh, I don't want, like, Vulcans to always be science officers. You know, people should be a little more diverse. And that was pretty much what guided my thinking throughout the process.
0: That's absolutely fascinating, yeah uh, maybe, maybe maybe to further on that, um have there been past and present characters that have influenced your own personal creations, like was there a little bit of Harcourt Fenton Mudd maybe in Cervantes' Quinn, or was there what's influenced your decision to make these characters?
4: interesting, uh, Harcourt Fenton Mud, and uh, to a lesser degree. Um, Cyrano Jones from Trouble with Tribbles, were both inspirations, at least in some small measure, to Cervantes Quinn. Uh, that was what uh, my editor had asked for. He said, you know, I want a character like Harcourt Fenton Mudd or like Cyrano Jones. Um, you know, I want them to be semi-heroic, but I also want them to have a bit of a dark side, an edge. And I took that. And the other thing he wanted was he wanted that kind of a name as well. We agreed that we wanted a name that had this really kind of highfalutin first name Mm -hmm. paired with a really prosaic sounding surname. And I think we came up with Quinn pretty early on as the surname. And it was only after I'd done a little bit of work, and I think we were sitting in Marco's office uh, talking it over and I was talking about how I wanted to get into the notion of quixotic, uh, you know, missions and people taking on hopeless causes. And as we got to talking about that, um, you know, and the fact that I had read and uh, loved Miguel Cervantes' novel Don Quixote, uh, we suddenly hit upon the notion of Cervantes. And I was like, "What about Cervantes Quinn?" And Marco said the name out loud very in that very dramatic Marco way that he has. Mm -hmm. Cervantes Quinn. (laughs) I like it. I like it, he said. And that was it. The character was named Cervantes Quinn. Uh, So, yeah, there was a little bit of that kind of thing. Sometimes I found inspiration for the characters outside of Star Trek. The inspiration, at least uh, slightly, you know, for uh, Commodore Reyes, the officer in charge of the star base and the whole sort of shooting match. He was inspired of anything by Edward James, almost performance as a Dama in the uh, reboot version of Battlestar Galactica. Mm-hmm. By okay. Moore. So there was some inspiration for him there. Uh, when I was thinking about the I might've been thinking a little bit about Lefem Nikita, uh, something like that. Um, you know, as some of the characters in the books are based off of people I knew. Uh, the character of Ming Zhang, who's the anthropology and archaeology officer, and in many ways represents the ethical heart of the series. He's sort of the uncorruptible true man of science. Uh, he's named after, uh, and in many ways modeled after, a guy I used to work with at the Sci-Fi Channel. Okay. Uh, You know, so a lot of Ming Zhang's uh, family backstory about the conflict with his father and the things that led him to leave his homeland and sort of rebel against his family's expectations. All of that is not just drawn out of thin air. That's actually drawn out of the real life of my friend Ming Zhang. Um, And I know that, you know, from working with him, that Ming is just this wonderful guy. So I decided to make his character the moral center of the uh, of the series excellent that that was the sort of thing I, I i drew those sorts of inspirations from lots of different sources
0: that is awesome
2: yeah um one, one of the things that, that we're actually doing on our podcast too is sort of creating so what would sort of be like if, if this was deep space nine to the original series we're making something of a voyager to the original series where it's you know ship bound sort of similar to the original series so that that's kind of I think that's kind of what kind of threaded that question right Allie?
3: Mm
2: -hmm. So and actually our our first you know sort of mapping out of of
3: characters and stuff that episode uh, of our podcast dropped today so I listened to it on the way home it was fun it was a really fun episode to make as well and and David, it's, it's
0: been really inspirational actually to listen to you talk about where you draw your characters from and where you get your ideas from. So.
4: Oh, thank you. I'm trying to think of like where some of the others were drawn from, uh, some of them were named after or modeled after, uh, people I knew like the, uh, the, the chief engineer of the Bombay uh, that we see in Harbinger, Kevin Judge named after, uh, One of my wife's uh, (laughs) ex-boyfriends, who she remained friends with. And I met him around the time, I think maybe a few months before I wrote the book, I had met him and we'd all gone out and had Mexican food. He's a wonderful guy, very funny. So I based it partly on him and partly on the actor Callum Blue, uh, who played sort of a frenetic, always put upon uh, British character, I think in the series Dead Like Me. Uh, which I believe was produced by Brian Fuller. Um, and Callum Blue always cracked me up. So it was partly that actor and partly my my wife's friend, you know, were definitely both in my head when I was writing this scene where when Kevin Judge is confronted with everything going wrong in his engine room, he has to look at his team of engineers and go, all right, show of hands, how many of you are paid saboteurs? <laughs> Just just put up your hands. <laughs> so it's that sort of level of sarcasm. Uh, the, the chief medical officer on the Bombay uh, Korean woman was inspired by the actress who plays uh, Lane Kim's mother on Gilmore Girls. Uh, and Gilmore Girls was the inspiration for the name of the civilian settlement inside Starbase Vanguard. Star's Landing is partly inspired by Star's Hollow. Oh,
2: really? Okay.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and Fontana Meadow. Originally, I thought I was naming it because it had a fountain in it, but then I realized I was actually naming it in honor of D.C. Fontana, uh, one of the women who wrote for the original Star Trek TV series and who pioneered much of what we know uh, about the Vulcans.
2: Yeah, I can say that. That's one of the things that, that really jumped out to me this, that it was you know named after uh, Dorothy there, and and when it because this is actually my my second time reading through Harbinger, and the first time i saw it, i was like you know that 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 that's really really neat that you you had done that so
4: there's lots of little easter eggs like that sort of sprinkled all throughout the whole
3: thing one, one thing i'm thinking or
2: you know try, trying to reconcile now since i've read this post uh season one of discovery um with the uh with um uh, I can't remember. her name. Uh, with with the, the the Klingon agent, how how did you kind of focus it more on like how Arne Darvin was or yes, did, you, Arne did, you, did you see Darvin, the, the, the comic that kind of explained that? Or was that post you writing this?
4: What comic are you referring to?
2: I can't remember the name of the comic, sorry. It's just it, it to me that just kind of popped into my head with cuz they they had a comic where they were where they kind of showed but didn't really show the alteration process from Klingon to
4: human. I don't really, I never read that. I'm not familiar okay. with it. Um, the inspiration there was Arne Darvin from Trouble with Tribbles. the notion that the Klingons were engaging in this type of uh, surgical and genetic modification in order to embed spies within the Federation. And this seemed like a, a great opportunity to do something like that, to put a character in the mix who would uh, raise the stakes on certain situations. Um, and it just, it gave me something fun to play with. Uh, especially once I, you know, the, once the wheels started turning and I found the connection between uh, Lercal and Tuprin, uh, then things just sort of, you know, took off from there. Hmm. Um, but yeah, this was long pre-discovery. This yeah. book was this book was written in late 2004 for the most part, okay, uh, and then published in the summer of 2005. Uh, very fast turnaround. Uh, it was a, longer than uh, the first two books I had written for Star Trek. It was the longest thing I'd written up to that point, coming in at around ninety four thousand words. Um. And it was a book that I wrote relatively early in my career. I mean, I think it was only maybe the third or fourth full-length novel that I'd written.
2: I can say, and it, and it just kind of seems, it did, didn't really seem like that when I was reading it. Like, you know, this was, you know, one of your earlier, or like, like an earlier work for an author. And, and I do give you tremendous credit and props for, for having it as well written as you did, being, now knowing that it's, it was only about your third
3: no, novel that you wrote. Oh, thank you. It's very kind.
0: And this is the very first Star Trek novel I've ever read. And I've got to say for, for getting into Star Trek literature, this is the perfect book. It's gripping and it's exciting. And I, I really appreciate it. It's, it's a good read.
4: Oh, thank you. Very kind. It's interesting in that uh, I was asked by my editor to tone down my normal uh, sort of inclination to pack it with action front to uh to back he wanted me to uh expand my skill set as he put it uh up to that point i had thought of myself as a writer of mostly action adventure thriller type material he said he wanted me to spend more time and more scenes working on understanding the psychology of the characters the relationships between them uh the friendships but also the rivalries the backstory and so there's a lot of stuff in there, and it's interesting in that, in my real life, I'd uh, just gotten married around that time in 2004, uh, a few months before I was approached to write this book. And because of my wife, uh, at that time, I was sort of just beginning to expand my degree of appreciation for jazz. Mm-hmm. So I'd gotten to listening to a lot of new music, a lot of new jazz. And I feel like in a lot of ways, the jazz that I was listening to helped rewire my brain to write more complex, more nuanced, more improvisational material than I had been doing before. Uh, and part of that shows up in the text. Uh, I imparted some of that to the character of Tuprin, Mm -hmm. uh, where I have her playing piano, like in the officer's club in the de facto officer's club of Manon's lounge. Um, And the piece I have her playing is one, you know, that I was listening to at the time, uh, a live track by Gene Harris, uh, who was a Chicago jazz master uh, piano player. Wow. So it it, it is interesting that, you know, you you talk about it's gripping, it's action, it's exciting, but in fact, it was actually pulling back from the degree of action that I had packed into my first two novels, Time to Kill and Time to Heal.
0: That's, I have been appreciating the complexity of every character and getting to know them and getting to see where they're at in the story.
4: Yep. Yeah, there was definitely a lot going on. I mean, uh, like Reyes suddenly being blindsided by the death of his mother. You've got uh, stuff going on with, uh, like I said, their call to prim, like their whole relationship was not something that was planned. Uh, It wasn't in the outline. Uh, When you're writing tie-in novels for Star Trek or Star Wars or anything like that, it's always mandatory to have a very detailed outline and to have the entire story approved in advance before one begins writing the novel. And that was true here. But it was while I was writing, uh, I believe, a scene where T'Prin was leaving a confrontation, she was crossing... Uh, like the meadow or something. And she had to go and get into a turbo lift. I remember writing the scene. I was writing it on Christmas night. Like my, I was at home visiting my family in the house where I grew up. Everybody else had gone to bed for the night. I'm down in the basement, out of the way at a little desk, writing my pages for the night on Christmas night. Wow. And that was where I suddenly, out of nowhere, I pull out this notion of the print being haunted by the Katra of uh, someone you know, that she killed in the kunuk Calafi 50 some odd years ago, right. but who put their dying thoughts into her head, just like Spock did with McCoy uh, at the end of Wrath of Khan. That just came out of nowhere. It was a, again, I credit jazz. It was like a moment of jazz improvisation where I suddenly realized I wanted to go in this direction. And once I planted this notion in my head of what was going on with Tuprin, that she was essentially a character with two warring personalities trapped in her head. She's trapped between passion and logic. She's constantly on edge. This is where all of her moral ambiguity is coming from. That was what eventually inspired the scene. Like I originally had just written in the outline, uh, Duprin confronts Anna Sandago, you know, sort of tracks her down and confronts her. And that's all it said in the outline And it turns out when I actually got to writing that scene, I realized this isn't the first time these two have confronted. And I realized they're not enemies, they're lovers. And again, it was just one of those moments that hit me while I was writing this scene. And I realized this needs to go a different direction. And that's the direction I took. So the the characters all sort of evolved like that during the writing of the book.
3: Yeah,
2: which, which uh kinda kinda leads me to, to, to bring up the the fan that emailed you about this particular scene.
4: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was a fun email. They uh <laughs> they they got kinda hot under the collar and claimed it was illogical and I actually was able to cite Canon chapter and verse and justify every single last detail and Kind of just took them apart really effectively and uh, you know very publicly on my blog without necessarily naming them per se. I hid their email, etc. Um, that got, that story got picked up by Io9 and a bunch of other sites. The Mary Sue blog, I think, picked it up. It went viral suddenly for a couple of days. Uh, you know, I you know, my my Google mentions, my Google notices were were just going haywire. <laughs> I actually got an email from J.J. Uh, Abrams' office. because This happened like later on. This was like after the first Star Trek movie came come out. We were several books into the series at this point when I got this email. Um, and I actually ended up getting a, a call, a nice phone call from J.J. Abrams' office. He was like, you know, w- way to stick to your guns, way to stick up for what's good and, and right in Star Trek. Well done. Oh, nice. You know, I was like, I'm like awesome. Like I thought I was in trouble or something. (laughs) His office just wanted to say, that's what we're looking for. That's what we're talking about. Way to do it.
0: Boldly go.
4: Boldly go.
3: Exactly.
4: (laughs) And it was the same sort of thing, like that complexity they are talking about is what uh, informed characters like Quinn. Quinn is not just a, he's not just like a Cyrano Jones or Harcourt Fenton mud buffoon. He's a complex, dark, sad guy. This is a guy who's approaching middle age. He feels like he's wasted his life. He has a dark story he doesn't tell anybody. Uh, you know, when people say you know, where you're from, he says you know, I'm a drunk I'm a citizen of the galaxy which is a little joke uh, nod to Casablanca. Uh, but you find out later in the series, you know, spoiler alert, that he used to be a mercenary. That he's actually a fairly dangerous guy. Uh, Tim Pennington, for whom later on the Pennington School of Journalism will be named. Uh, he might even found it. We don't really know. Maybe it's just named in his honor. Who could say? But we are following this guy as a young journalist trying to chase you know, his next big story, his next big scoop. He's this great reporter. He's got great journalistic uh, ethics. He's got the shittiest personal ethics you've ever seen. He's cheating on his <laughs> yeah. wife. He's caught up in the middle of some... He's, just, he's a terrible human being, but he's a great reporter, and there's a conflict there. And then, of course, when his lover is you know on the ship that gets blown up, spoiler alert, in the middle of the book, everything goes haywire. Now he's trying to cover up evidence of the affair post facto before his wife gets to the station. But, of course, that means he's trying to get rid of evidence that's linked to a military investigation of a destroyed starship which puts him right in the crosshairs of the intelligence officer. So it's like, it was all these little stories. And the whole thing, when I was structuring the plot, I realized the midpoint reversal, the midpoint turning uh, element in the plot, everything hinges on the destruction of the Bombay. That's the very middle of the book. Everything before it builds toward it. Everything that happens after it happens because of it. So that is the linchpin on which the entire first book turns.
0: And having, having said that, when you're writing the novel um, and you have this vision of the story and where it wants to go and, and the characters you want to have, do you have some left turns that it's taken that are maybe your favorite parts of the novel? Or did you develop maybe some side stories that didn't come to you until the time of writing?
4: Uh, so a long time ago. I don't really remember much about a book I wrote 16 years ago. <laughs> Most of it was planned out. Most of it would have been in the outline. That said, there are always moments that you discover in the writing of the book. And as I said, one of them was the moment of discovery that Tuprin was haunted. The next was the discovery that Deprin and Anna were lovers, which again, was not planned, was not in the outline. Um, One of my favorite scenes, again, I simply had touched on it in the most perfunctory way in the outline, was Jim Kirk, as a young captain, has to go and sort of deliver the bad news of death of uh, next of kin to Herman D'Amato, who I believe, I'm trying to remember what episode we saw D'Amato eventually get killed in. I think he might have died in that which survives, but he might have died in another episode but the crewman or uh, officer who he goes to talk to, Damato, is a canon character who we saw in the original series, and now you find out Damato has this whole tragic history. He had a wife. He didn't know his wife was cheating on him, but his wife died uh, supposedly heroically. So you got this whole new appreciation. Like, if you, so if you ever yeah. go back and rewatch the original series, and Damato walks on and you've read Vanguard, you're like, oh, wow, this guy, I know his whole life. I know the whole tragedy of his story, and he has no idea what's coming, this poor schmuck.
0: Yeah. Uh,
4: <laughs> but uh, the scene where Kirk has to go and talk to him, and Kirk realizes that he's just got to find some way through this conversation, and he's got to feel his way through it, and he gets out of it going, why don't they teach classes about this at the Academy? That would be a youthful skill set to teach to young officers. Teach us how to talk to people after, you know, when you have to deliver bad news because they don't teach this. There is no course for this. They give us a million other courses. You know, they teach you stellar navigation and tactics and this and that. And the other thing you pass your firefighting qualification, but they never teach you how to talk to people. And that's one of the things that Kirk learns. And it was sort of fun having Kirk, you know, even though it's not a TOS novel, having Kirk and Spock uh, in the story and having Spock interact with toprin was fascinating because it sets up uh, this sort of comparison between the two of them. They're very different characters. toprin is much older and she's far more psychologically damaged. Um, but it sets up you know, something. I set up this whole sort of rapport between the two of them in book one, because I come back to it in the final book of the saga much farther down the line. There's going to be a parallel to their moment at the end of the saga when Spock is going to uh come back and and provide a moment of counsel due to prince
3: okay something to look forward to later later on down and absolutely now
2: um how how involved were were either you or to your knowledge Dayton or Kevin involved in you know getting you know the details for the the schematics that they put in at the
4: center of the book well Dayton and Kevin weren't involved at all at this point they didn't they weren't even approached until after book one uh was done being edited and was in production okay um the way that worked out in terms of the schematics in the book by Maseo Okazaki uh he's the guy who I believe runs the Starfleet Museum website uh, and he had done a lot of similar design work. He actually designed the interior of the station uh, and the exterior to a degree. He designed the Sagittarius, which was inspired by something else, I guess, a different ship design he had done previously. And he scaled it down for us to be our scout ship. And he did both the interior and the exteriors. Those aren't included in the book, but we later published those online. I've got them up on my website. Um, Marco and I worked very closely with Maceo. Uh, So he was developing those schematics while I was developing the outline and while I was starting the manuscript. Before I was too deep into the manuscript, maybe a quarter of the way in, maybe a third, Maceo and Marco sort of finalized the designs for the station interior and for the Sagittarius, and uh, they shared those with me, so I had those schematics to look at as reference. So when I was sort of taking people on like this guided tour of the interior of the star base, and talking about the sections that are sort of only half completed or where the lights aren't on yet, or you know going down deep into the bowels, into the cargo storage bays and the reactor core and all that stuff. I was able to do all that with confidence because Maceo had given me fantastic internal schematics for the station. Uh, and it really just gave me a sense of the scale, seeing it drawn with like the little starships parked inside the saucer section of the hull up top and being able to imagine, you know, that you could park four constitution class starships inside this thing. This is no joke. And they built this thing in a hurry. So that, again, informed my concept of, you know, well, this base clearly means something to these guys. Um, so, yeah, Maceo was involved very early. Uh, Marco knew of his work and approached him to be involved. And I'm glad he did because Maceo's imagination and his ability to visualize helped me see the places more real. His work really sort of brought the place into sharp focus for me so that in my imagination, I could then live and dwell inside the spaces of Vanguard. Um, and then Dayton and Kevin, part of what got them involved, I'd gotten to be friends with them cause I'd met them at a con called shore leave, uh, in summer of 2004. And the three of us had bonded very quickly
2: over, over rush, no doubt.
4: Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> big, big rush, you know, lunatic sauce. Um, So one of the things that Marco asked me to do when developing the series concept, originally he wanted it to be a multi-author series the way he was doing with the Deep Space Nine post-finale novels that he was editing. So he wanted it to be something where he could switch up and bring in new authors on each book and have a variety of styles, variety of prose styling, variety of narrative approaches, uh, just different authorial voices. So when I was thinking about the overall saga, the direction of the plot, this would happen and be, this is what we'll do in book one, sort of set the stage, get the ball rolling, introduce all the key players. This would be the way we escalate in book two. This could be where we go in book three and so on and so forth. When I started plotting these out, uh, just in a very rough general way, what I started thinking about was, okay, book two. Let's tailor book two so that it would be a perfect fit for Dayton and Kevin, so that there'd be nobody that he would think of would be better to do that one than them. And book three, I thought, let's tailor this to be something that he would call my buddy Keith DeCandido. Let's make book four something for which he'd call Kirsten Beyer or Heather Jarman. Let's make this one something for which he'd call James Swallow. And, that's, and I did that sort of a thing where thinking through my peers and my colleagues within the Trek book community. I tried to come up with ideas that would be ideally suited to their talents, their styles, uh, their interests. And that was how I sort of planned out the, you know, the long-term arc of the saga. And I planned it to run anywhere from six to 10 books, depending on how it was received, how it was selling, uh, how quickly we burned through the plot. So based on that, it was a natural call for Marco in consultation with me to say, yes, Dayton and Kevin are the perfect guys to go to to write book uh, two. So he went to them and they did book two. And I realized we're getting a little ahead because we're still talking about book one here. But what he saw was, you know, they did book two. I did some other stuff. And then I wanted to come back and write book three. And I was building off of what they had done in book two. And I was riffing off some ideas that they had brought to the table because I was really excited about, uh, you know, the new ideas they had brought to the mix. And as I was working on and talking about book three, Dayton and Kevin were like, oh, we could do so much with that. And that was it sparked for Marco. He said, there's a great dynamic happening with these guys. You know, this, this partnership on one side, Mac on the other, having them volley this series back and forth, having them alternate books. In a form of artistic conversation where, and that's how they move the story forward. That's something that hasn't really been done before. Or if it has, it hasn't been done very often. And it was intriguing enough as a work method that Marco embraced it pretty early on, like right around the time I finished book three. uh, Marco decided that was how we were going to do the rest of the saga.
3: Now now kinda kind of circling a little
2: bit to kind of do the the talk about the prequel from the uh, Corps of Engineers that that
4: distant uh, early warning
2: yes, uh that uh Dayton and Kevin had written uh what all consultation did you do for them to get things kind of about where where you need to to set up harbinger uh
4: I don't even remember if distant early warning came out before Harbinger it was a prequel, but I believe it was published. After I don't remember when it was published, though.
2: I say it was published about their like shortly before their their uh, the second book, *Some of the Thunder*.
4: Okay, um, I mean I would have consulted on it. I know they would have run the story outline past me just to make certain there were no conflicts with the continuity, no conflicts with the full, you know, with the future planned story arc. Uh, and I had also been working on the Star Trek Sce series as well. I would contributed several. Installments to that monthly ebook series, so uh, they were doing it, of course, with their flashback characters uh, on the Lavelle uh, or the Level. I can't remember. I never get the pronunciation of that ship right. Um, but yeah, they had sort of staked their claim on the 23rd century SCE flashback stories, and it just so happened that they meshed perfectly as a prequel opportunity to you know, tie into the construction of Starbase 47.
3: I like I say one of the, one of the things that, that, I, that really kind of stood out to me and uh, from reading on, on my,
2: my Kindle app, a bunch of other people, uh, the, the line when uh, Reyes is given the, the eulogy at the station for, uh, for uh, the one that goes, uh, our anger is justified, but we must not let it consume us. We must not let our sorrow be turned to hatred. Justice is not vengeance, even if some want to believe otherwise. At times like this, it's vital that we embrace the better angels of our nature, no matter how hard it is.
4: Invoking a little bit of, he's invoking Lincoln. Okay. Lincoln was popularly credited with the line about the better angels of our nature. I believe that was part of the Gettysburg address.
2: Yeah, I gotta say that, that, that to me just kind of, kind of, kind of really stuck out to me. Um, especially in, in the times that, that, that we're living in.
4: the line I guess the line that to me always sticks out from the eulogy, my favorite part of it was when he says, you know, he's quoting the poem, uh, our deaths uh, are not ours. They are yours. They will mean what you make of them. Uh, and, it taught, and it basically you know, means, you know, we've given you this sacrifice, but what our sacrifice ultimately means, what the sacrifice of our lives will signify in the long run depends upon what you do with the political capital or the temporary advantage or whatever it is that you've gleaned from our sacrifice, what you do with it will define whether or not our sacrifice was meaningful or pointless. And so it's a sort of a reminder to people, okay, we've paid this price in blood. We cannot squander it. We have to proceed with honor. We have to proceed with courage we cannot let this sacrifice be in vain.
3: Now, um, well, was part of the reason uh, you
2: guys decided to to use the, the spot like right after um, where no man has gone before, so that way to kind of smooth out a few things in canon as well?
4: Well, I wasn't trying to fix anything in canon. <laughs> not uh, I, I, well,
2: I said smooth, not fix. So...
4: I mean, I guess what I liked about the setting of 2265, uh, and I talked about this with Marco, is that, again, we were trying to write a series where we wanted to, as much as possible, cover the same period of time as the original series. So we have our our, uh, prologue, which takes place, I believe, in 2263. Yes. A couple of years earlier. And we have Matt Decker uh, on his ship. uh, And they make sort of the initial discovery of what we're going to later realize is the Shaddai metagenome, and that's what's going to set all of this in motion. And basically, somebody's going to recognize or realize the incredible potential of what Decker and his crew have found, uh, and that is what creates Operation Vanguard, uh, leads to the creation of Starbase Vanguard, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but yeah, ha- having the principal action start around twenty two sixty five. What I found interesting about that period was that it represents this sort of visual transition between the the look and style, the uniforms of where no man has gone before, uh, and those of say the Corbomite Maneuver, the Man Trap, you know, the early season one of TOS. So I was trying to capture, you know, that feeling of transition between the pilot. uh, You know, not so much trying to smooth over the details of cannons, but trying to provide a bridge from where no man has gone before to the Corbin might maneuver sort of trying to bridge, you know, the, the original pilot with the second pilot. Okay. Which actually I'm talking about the cage. I'm sorry, not where no man. I'm talking about uh, the cage.
3: Yeah.
4: And we're coming in right after where no man, where the enterprise is on its way home after the whole disastrous, uh, Gary Mitchell ordeal. Uh,
3: so yeah, I was trying to bridge the cage with where no man. Let's see, uh, do you have anything else at the, the moment, Allie?
0: I don't. I just want to say what a privilege it's been um, to, to listen to how your thought process worked throughout the whole novel. And, and again, I have to say I'm a big fan. I'm really glad that this is my first introduction into Star Trek literature.
4: Well, thank you. I'm, I'm glad it's been an enjoyable uh, entry point for you. I hope you'll continue to enjoy more.
0: I really look forward to reading more and finding out what happens and seeing more of the characters develop. And yeah, it's, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you.
4: No, you're very welcome. For those who are curious, there's a lot more information. Like if you go to my website, davidmack.pro and you drill down into the book section about Vanguard. um, If you go to the, like the last book in the series, Storming Heaven, uh, there's a Vanguard finale page that's linked from the books information page on my site. And you can get stuff like you can read the original series Bible, oh. uh, you can see the original schematics, um, you know th- there's all kinds of you know resources there so that you can see like who the actors were that I had in mind uh, as some of my character inspirations for both you know the lead cast uh, and the supporting cast, although if I were casting it today, I'd probably go in a different direction on most of them
0: but still that's going to be my weekend that's awesome
2: yeah I gotta say and, and... Uh, maybe once we're we're done with the series and we can uh get all you guys around together, we can kind of discuss who you'd cast with with current actors
4: oh sure sure i have actually been thinking about that and updating my wish list just in case you know. <laughs> well
2: that would be fun
4: just in case alex Kurtzman calls you know. right
2: right i I do have one more 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 question pertaining to the novel um what kind of inspired you to use the 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 Tholians as sort of a, a foil for both the Klingons and the federation in this one?
4: Well, the Tholians were one of those great antagonists of the original series, precisely because you didn't get to see much of them. They really, to my mind, capture that feeling of the other. They're not a humanoid antagonist, so you can't just have scenes with them the way you would with Romulans or Klingons. They're not as easily understood. They're vaguely insectoid, but they're also crystalline. They're kind of like crystalline arthropods, Uh, And there'd been some fascinating development work, not in canon, of course, but done by uh, Michael Martin and Andy Mangles, I believe in uh, some books they wrote, uh, The Sundered, uh, which I think were early uh, Titan books, maybe, or maybe they were Lost Era books. But they'd done this fascinating notion about the Tholians uh, as having this sort of shared communal thought space, kind of like a gestalt not quite a Borg collective, but, you know, sort of like almost like a true natural hive mind. But, you know, the idea that they could con- you know, communicate on this weird thought wave level mm-hmm. across interstellar distances. They also developed this really sort of fascinating thing. Like you would look at these glowing crystalline arthropods and you'd think, how the heck do they recognize each other? And as you get into it from their point of view, you realize that they're very attuned to color at a color temperature so their names include things like asreen and then in brackets the sallow meaning you know almost colorless uh somebody the gold somebody else the silver and you realize that you know the color that is embedded in like the crystal matrix of a particular tholian marks them as part of an ethnic substrate or part of a family substrate um, and then they're all linked through this thought space this uh, this thought wave uh, and it turns out you know you can simulate it uh, artificially. Uh, as you get deeper into the Vanguard Saga, you find first of all like the Tholians are there, and you're wondering why are the Tholians so damn aggressive in book one? What, what is it that's you know what what is the the wild hair that's got them all spun up? And eventually you you find out pretty quickly. You'll find out by book three.
1: Okay.
4: Uh, but what we did is you know we and this was all again. All plotted out. It's all in the series bible. It was all intentional. We had this vision of a master sort of the story that not only spans the you know three or four years uh, of time of the original series, but also gets into deep Star Trek cosmology and is talking about the origin of species. Like so, basically, you find out where the Tholians as a species came from, how they came to be. Ooh. You find out what their connection is to this whole overarching saga. the whole story and you find that they're an integral part of it Uh, and there's a reason why after these events are done uh, the depiction of tholians in star trek has shown that even into the late 24th century the tholians are still pissed at us they still hate the federation they're still angry they're still aggressive they're still known to attack they have not cooled off after a century you know, by this point, you know, we've got alliances with the Klingons. You know, we're taking in Romulan refugees when their star explodes. The Tholians, the Tholians are still saying, no, screw you. We'd like you dead. We still want you all dead. The Vanguard saga will show you why.
2: Okay.
4: So it's about where did Genesis come from? It's about where did the Tholians come from? Why are the Tholians so pissed at us? And why do they stay pissed at us pretty much forever? Um, but it's also in the end, uh, as you can probably tell just from book one, the entire premise behind the series is unsung heroes. It's all about people who are going to make sacrifices in the name of duty. They're going to do what they think is right. And history is not going to know their names. These are people who are going to live and die in the shadows. They're going to sacrifice everything and nobody's ever going to thank them for it. Nobody's ever going to know they did it. There's not going to be any statues to them. There aren't going to be any plaques. They're going to basically do everything and leave everything on the field in the name of honor and service, and then they'll be forgotten. And that's really what it's about, is unsung heroes. Uh, And the inspiration uh, behind Vanguard, if there was ever going to be a single piece of music that summed up everything that Vanguard is about, it's a song by Rush called Bravado. Um, and sort of the, I guess part of the, uh, the refrain of the, the chorus is, uh, um, you know, you, you know, if everything is lost, uh, the, the notion is that you can lose everything, but as long as you've still got love, then you win. Um, and that's pretty much, you know, you'll see as you go through this, the books, the reason also everybody starts off in such a flawed complicated, morally ambiguous place in book one is that if they don't start off someplace kind of screwed up, they have no room to improve. Uh, these are not your squeaky clean, ordinary Star Trek heroes. These are people who, you know, like Reyes especially, but also especially to Prin, but even still on a similar level, Desai, the JAG officer, Rano Desai, uh, Cervantes Quinn, Tim Pennington, Almost all of your regulars, except for Ming Zhang, are coming into this story morally or ethically compromised in some way. And what the overall saga is going to be about for most of them is self-improvement, redemption, atonement. Uh, It's going to be about changing their ways, accomplishing their mission, but uh, finding honor along the way and uh, an atoning for the sins that have brought them to where they are by the time the series ends.
0: Now I'm even more excited to read it.
4: <laughs> I gotta say, uh, Vanguard is probably one of the creative highlights of my career. Partly because it was a great opportunity to work with Marco, who is a fabulous editor, um, someone from whom I learned a great deal Uh, He helped me improve as a writer tremendously from the start, uh, you know, of working with him on this. But also because it was a great opportunity to work with Dayton and Kevin and later also with James Swallow, uh, three guys who, you know, I now love like brothers. Um, And again, they're also fabulous. They also forced me to raise my game. Uh, You know, the fun that Dayton and I and Kevin and I had with the two of them on one side, me on the other, I blow up a ship in book one, so they have to blow up something bigger in book two. So I've got to blow up something bigger in book three. And we just, we, we keep pushing each other to more and more ridiculous extremes, but we also uh, make each other, you know, think in terms of more complex storylines. We keep throwing each other plot curveballs, where we go, well, how the hell am I supposed to explain that? And yet a guy goes, well, that's your problem now. My book's done yeah <laughs> so you know at one part they uh, they come to the end of book three and they come to this element uh, which i won't spoil but they go so this thing uh, in the last scene that thing i go yeah what about it well wh- what's the idea? what is it wh- what's the plan what does it do uh, how are we supposed <laughs> to do it i go i have no idea i just thought it would be kind of cool and badass and sort of creepy uh why don't you figure it out
3: <laughs> oh thanks
4: a lot <laughs> thanks mac thanks
2: I'm sure not, not, not quite as nicely as you just put it,
4: too. Yeah, it, was a, it <laughs> might have been a tad earthier and might have employed a few more colorful metaphors.
0: Earthier, I like that.
4: <laughs> yeah, uh, but, it's, but writing Vanguard, uh, you know, over the course of like seven or eight years, we, we wrote the, uh, the seven novels and the anthology and the prequel and uh, sort of epilogue book to it. Um, it really, in a lot of ways, is one of the great creative highlights of my career. Part of me wishes that I could see it adapted to TV as, like, you know, a three season Star Trek TV series. On the other hand, it's kind of perfect the way it is, and I'd hate to see it get butchered and changed by the collaborative nature of TV. So
2: even if you were involved in that,
4: <laughs> I mean, if I was in the writer's room and I could control the process to some degree, that would be great. But I don't know. I think it's perfect the way it is, and I think that it's sort of fitting, but with the theme of the series being the Forgotten Heroes, you know, if it's one of those little sort of hidden gems within the Star Trek literary, uh, you know, smorgasbord, that occasionally people are just going to keep finding it, Um, and they're going to realize, you know, that there was this labor of love uh, that just happens to sit in the middle of, uh, of all this, so... I, I, did that, I did, I'm always thrilled whenever somebody new finds Vanguard.
2: Yeah, and I, I can really tell that, that not not only your your love for for what you're producing, but also the the love of Star Trek. I can I can see it. You know, Literally. with the, each page yeah. I'm I'm turning. So
4: yeah, it pretty much comes through everything. And uh, the third book in in the saga is really the big, the big one. I mean, that's probably my favorite. That's one of my favorite books I've ever written. Is Reap the Whirlwind? Oh. All the Star Trek books I've ever written—that's one of my favorites.
2: I'm gonna say we we are planning on covering that. That'll probably be in about uh, two months because uh, this this next month we're gonna cover the next two. Summon the yeah, And also, we're gonna do distant early warning too. So that's
4: yeah, a good—you know—get get the uh, the, the two for there, and then get uh, Dayton and Kevin in. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. Oh, I do have one more for
2: the for for the novel. Oh, um, sure, with, with the uh, environmental suits, which ones are we supposed to imagine? The uh, shower curtains or the ones more like <laughs> Tholian web?
4: <laughs> I would say go a little more uh, a little more Tholian web.
2: Okay,
0: too late. No, I'm just <laughs> 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 yeah, I
2: just yeah. Definitely enjoyed the talk, David. Uh, thank you so much for for joining us and.
0: Yes, thank you very much.
4: Uh, it was a pleasure talking with you both. Hopefully you'll both be uh, back in a couple of months and we can all talk about Reap the Whirlwind.
0: Honestly, it's been a privilege and I'm fangirling now a little bit. So thank you very much. <laughs> My
1: pleasure. The Voyages, the Star Trek original animated Galvin Timeline podcast is hosted and produced by Ali Black, Chris Hill, and Mike Burse and is part of the Holosuite Media Podcast Network. To keep up to date on all the news and updates from the Voyages, be sure to follow the Voyages pod on Twitter and Facebook. You can find Allie Black on Twitter at Enzo McCallan with two C's and two L's, Chris Hill on Twitter at TheChrisHill, and Mike Bursts on Twitter at MikeBurst6. To join the HollowSuite Media Community Discussion Group, simply type The Nexus into the Facebook search bar and we'll see you there. Thank you for listening. Live long and prosper.
0: This show is brought to you by Sweet Media. Computer, list other available Sweet Media programs. Loading
2: Sweet Preview Program for The Expanse, a Star Trek Enterprise
0: podcast. And then the second mention, again, love letter to TNG, when Archer and Tripp are sharing their scotch, and then Archer says, well, here's to the next generation. And I was like, oh!
2: Why are there so many nods in this episode for TNG fans like Amy to be like,
3: oh,
0: my God, yeah, next year. They had movies
2: and everything. They just had a film three years before or two years before. And yet I'm here as an Enterprise fan waiting for something.
0: Right, (laughs) yeah.
2: Give me anything that makes me feel like, oh,
1: yeah, four years of Enterprise.
2: Loading Hollow Sweet Preview Program for There Are Four Questions, a Star Trek Spotlight podcast. I feel like they're starting to open it up to a lot of people, and I think that we need, uh, like, young people. We're we're the we're the future. Like you're the future. You you can dictate how you want to change the world. And if you feel like you want to be whatever you want to be, don't ever let anybody tell you that you can't, because you can do whatever you want. You know, I I tell people that all the time. I'm like, don't give up, because you never know what you can do until you do it. Loading Holosuite Preview Program for Ladies' Trek Library, women with a passion for Star Trek books.
0: Diane Duane, as a female writer, had to put in, which I liked, having a, a female in command, you know, a Klingon, because um, we, we don't see that as much as the Klingons, with the Klingons. No, um, that's a good point. Uh, yeah, the, uh, the, la- the Klingon landing party, the head of the Klingon landing party was a woman. And in the original series, we didn't really, did we even see, I don't think we saw any female Klingons in charge at all. Um, and even in the next generation.
3: Computer, deactivate Holosuite.